0: Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Madhumita Mergia, and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. In India, personal data is snowballing and people are calling for more stringent data privacy laws. In response, Narendra Modi's BJP-led government has devised a new data privacy bill that is striking a different path from Europe's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. However, amid WhatsApp hacking allegations against the government and the rise of facial recognition, critics of this new bill say that it paves the way for Orwellian levels of state surveillance. Here to discuss this with me is the FT's Benjamin Parkin, down the line from Mumbai. Hi Benjamin. First, can you give us an overview of the data privacy conversation that's happening in India? When did it first come to the foreground?
1: Hi, Madhu. The discussion really goes back about a decade, I suppose, in earnest, when India started building the world's largest biometric identity scheme, its Aadhaar program. So essentially, citizens would get a unique ID that was linked to their fingerprints or iris scans. So it was an incredibly powerful tool and really helped to streamline the delivery of a lot of government services, for example, by sort of minimizing bureaucracy But it was also seen as a dangerous tool because there was so much intimate data collected in one place, whether it was your biometrics and linked to your financial data and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Separately, there's been a really, in many senses, nearly unprecedented explosion of mobile phone use and internet use over the past few years. I suppose outside of China, there's nowhere else where hundreds of millions of people who previously had never used the internet now have phones, have Facebook accounts, TikTok accounts, and are shopping and whatever else, chatting with their friends.
0: What do you think has been the catalyst for this bill in particular? In
1: 2017, the Supreme Court in India ruled that citizens enjoyed a Fundamental rights to privacy under the Constitution. That was largely a response to the ADA program, but it created a degree of urgency around this question of what to do with all of this data, what protections could citizens expect, how could companies and others use it. So a committee was formed and a draft personal data protection bill was put out in 2018. And in December, the government, the IT ministry, put out a new draft, a much-changed draft of the bill into Parliament.
0: So what does this data privacy bill actually propose?
1: The bill is in many senses reminiscent of GDPR, though its authors had envisioned it as inspired by GDPR, but taking a new path that would make more sense for developing countries. That's how they framed it. It contains all sorts of strong privacy protections, but was also intended to help India's fast-growing digital economy flourish. On practical terms, it proposes separating out certain categories of data, such as sensitive and critical personal data, which will receive extra protection. It has tough rules around how users can process the data of children, for example, who are defined as anyone below the age of 18. And it also has other provisions such as a right to be forgotten, the ability to correct and erase your data online if it's no longer accurate or whatever else.
0: So what's been the public reception then to the latest draft of the bill? You wrote that the man who conceived and wrote the first draft has called it Orwellian. Can you tell us why?
1: Yeah, so this is Justice Shri Krishna, a retired Supreme Court Justice, who was appointed after that privacy ruling to help draft the original bill. He's Been extremely vocal about the fact that he's disillusioned with it. And that's because, while in many respects it's even tougher on, say, companies than GDPR, it gives the government a very broad brush to bypass the bill. So the latest version includes this provision whereby the central government can exempt any agency from all provisions or privacy obligations that would be introduced under this bill. While Europe and a lot of other countries provide you know, a mechanism for, say, intelligence agencies to intercept communications or collect data. This is subject to legislative oversight or parliamentary oversight, as it was originally intended to in, in Justice Shri Krishna's bill. And now it's not. So in his words, the government has carte blanche.
0: Have you any sense of what citizens or civil society activists and even corporations have thought about this bill?
1: There's been mixed reactions. If this bill passes, companies stand to have to deal with increased regulation. But I think even many of them recognise this is a necessary step. However, the government exemption, which wasn't in the original bill, has alarmed a lot of people, particularly in the context of What is happening in India at the moment where there have been a lot of protests, there's been unrest and there's been a broader debate about the state of civil liberties in the country. I think the concern among not just privacy advocates, but also people from the corporate world and all sorts of others is that this could backfire.
0: Okay, so could you tell us you alluded to this Could you tell us a little bit more about Modi's new citizenship law, the protests against it, and whether you're seeing instances or reports of surveillance and reports of people being critical of this?
1: Sure. So in December, Parliament passed a very controversial law that provided a fast track essentially for non-Muslim religious minorities from India's Muslim majority neighbours, i.e. Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan. To citizenship. This was seen as undermining India's secular constitution. It was seen as discriminatory against Muslims, not least because there are persecuted Muslim minorities in some of these surrounding countries. And it was also seen as part of a broader agenda on the part of Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government to promote Hindu nationalism, the idea that India is a homeland for Hindus. It's also tied up in broader concerns that Muslims could be subject to future scrutiny and insecurity in India, such as separate plans for a citizenship registry. By virtue of this bill, they would be more vulnerable to repercussions from that. So this bill has set off huge protests, and the response by the authorities has been seen as very heavy-handed. There have been violent crackdowns, there have been killings, there have been mass arrests, but it's also put India's surveillance capabilities on show. For example, in Delhi, police started to use facial recognition technology at protests for the first time. Something that was originally intended to help find missing children has now been used to help monitor these protests and identify suspected quote-unquote rabble rousers and others who are seen as potentially dangerous. And this has, in itself, alarmed a lot of people. It's
0: interesting because that seems like a transnational issue because we're seeing the same worries here in the UK, both in Wales and in England, where police are also deploying facial recognition at football games and other public events to prevent criminals from causing trouble. But it's a slippery slope, isn't it?
1: What's interesting in the Indian context is that This has coincided with a real period of social unrest. And so what in other circumstances would have been an alarming trend, but perhaps for many people an academic one, has really started to become a very pressing and urgent issue.
0: And have there been any other examples of facial recognition being used by the Modi government?
1: Facial recognition has been used a fair bit by state governments, some controlled by Modi's BJP party and others not. But the Home Ministry is currently in the process of building out what could be one of the largest facial recognition databases in the world. It's put out a request for bids to help create a system that could take data, not just from CCTV feeds, but from other government agencies, including agencies that have nothing to do with law enforcement and security, as well as from even newspapers and online. And this, if realized, could give police around the country access to huge amounts of data, which they could pull up very easily and used to aid their work, but in the eyes of critics, identify and inappropriately surveil people.
0: Beyond facial recognition, there was also the case of the recent alleged WhatsApp hacks, again, in response to some of the protests being seen around the country. What happened there and how did that fuel these fears about where this government's ethical lines are drawn?
1: Yeah, so this was part of the international scandal around the use of Pegasus, this Israeli-made software that could hack into people's WhatsApp accounts. It emerged that there were a number of suspected victims in India, at least a couple of dozen. Now, WhatsApp was suing NSO, the maker of Pegasus. And NSO has said that it only sells the software to governments. That has turned the suspicion towards Modi's government, particularly as many of the alleged victims were vocal critics of his government and activists generally. Now, the government denied this and demanded answers from WhatsApp as to how this could have happened. But this has come as part of a broader tussle, as it were, between Modi's government and social media companies like WhatsApp to break their encryption and share messages with the authorities, something that WhatsApp says is impossible, but that the government says is necessary for national security purposes. And this is an ongoing battle that's currently in court.
0: India's come head to head with the US on the issue of data. Why are they in opposition to one another?
1: So as part of this broader reassessment of personal data in India, Indian policymakers have gravitated, like others around the world, towards data localization, i.e. the idea that some data or all data has to be stored in the country of origin. For the Indian government, this is seen as important to protecting its citizens. For example, you know, health records, preventing the misuse of extremely intimate data. But the US government and American companies fundamentally oppose this and see it as a trade barrier. If you think about the largest tech companies in the world who are American for the most part, They've prospered on the ability of data to flow freely around the world, collected in one country and processed in another. And so India's measures have disproportionately affected these companies. This has contributed to a broader deterioration of trade relations between the US and India, which has resulted in tariffs on various goods. The latest bill has walked back some of the more controversial provisions, but it's still there and it's still seen as an important and contentious issue.
0: Looking forward, what is the process now that remains before this data privacy bill becomes law? Obviously, there have been critics and protests. Is there going to be more of a revision process? Where does that leave us with the future of data privacy in India?
1: So the bill is currently being reviewed by a parliamentary committee. There's obviously a lot of interest and anticipation in what that bill could look like, particularly given that it's already changed considerably from the original 2018 version. Now, more broadly, in light of the use of surveillance online and facial recognition, there have been calls for separate laws to regulate intelligence agencies, for example, and their information gathering. But there's not much evidence that that's forthcoming. So if this bill passes in its current form, at least as far as the government exemptions, the Modi government will have a lot of scope to continue building up some of these controversial surveillance projects.
0: Fascinating, especially since this same debate and battle is playing out across many different countries right now, with facial recognition laws being considered and drafted here in the UK, at the European Commission level, in the US even. Thanks, Benjamin, and thanks for listening. Don't forget, if you've missed our latest episodes on the oil money flowing into football, Trump's pardoning power, and whether fossil fuels are turning into stranded assets, you can subscribe and listen on all the usual podcast platforms.